Hello, Mainly fans. It's July, it's hot, unless you're one of our listeners in the Southern Hemisphere, and there's a lot going on. So this episode is going to be about beer in Colonial Maine, with dips into discussions of other alcohols. This episode was another in which I had the pleasure of taking the show on the road, this time to York, Maine, where my wife Robin and I sampled some heritage or historically inspired beers. And remember, this podcast is safe to consume in any quantity when operating a motor vehicle. So let's do this. Welcome all to our very first live on-site show of Mainly History. My guest today is Tad Baker, friend of the show, a returning guest, a professor of history at Salem State. Right, repeat offender, as we call it. That's right. He is a repeat offender, and we were recording from his homestead at Snowshoe Rock in York, Maine. And here with us as well is my lovely wife, Robin. We're gonna be tasting some historic brews, and so Robin did not wanna miss out on this uh, on this chance. Here for the beer. That's right, that's right. <laughs> exactly. So we'll be, we'll be getting all of, our, all of our tasting notes from everybody and talking about some historic brews and uh, the history of alcohol in colonial Maine and elsewhere. We could talk for hours. Exactly, exactly, so this is great. All right. So to begin with, Tad, I know that we're gonna we're gonna jump into some of the first tastes real soon. But uh, <laughs> please, please to yes. give us a big picture, and by all sure. means, start drinking. But alcoholic beverages in 17th century Maine, so yep. places like York, where yep. you make your home, one of these early towns. What was the role of alcoholic beverages in 17th century Maine? Basically, everybody drank. Okay. Okay, that's the simple yeah, way to put exactly. it. Exactly. So even children, <laughs> not when, because in a large part, of course, well, actually, one of the preferred beverages would have been cider, and pretty much every homestead would have had an apple orchard. So, um, um, cider or or pear cider, known as perry, would have been very important beverages. But beer too, because in fact, beer was was actually safer to drink than the water, right? And that goes back to England in uh, early modern times, where. Um, you know, your well might be out behind the house next to where the pigs lived and right down slope from the cemetery. And just and the thing was, with beer, people didn't realize it at the time because they weren't microbiologists back then, right? Um, but, but beer is purified. It's boiled, which preserves it. And then it has preservatives in it, either herbs or hops. And that gets into beer versus ale. We can talk about that. So point is, people drank beer pretty much all day. Particularly, though, does that mean that everybody was loaded all the time? Absolutely not. Most of what they drank was called small beer. You've heard the expression, people crying in their small beer. It was a, it was a beer that might be only like 1% or 2% alcohol. So today, that's the kind of beer that's legal in like Utah. Exactly. Basically. Okay. Yes, exactly. It's okay. like ultra, ultra light Almost in non-alcohol beer, right? Yeah. And uh, the thing is, though, that would be beer that was had was had preservatives and it had been boiled and was better again than going out into like your your well, which 
if you were in an urban environment, and Maine was pretty safe, but if people who came over here from places like London, where the water was fetid, you know, there's a very, a very famous about this story about this recorded in, in Mort's relation about Plymouth Colony, that the Mayflower stopped and they decided to settle. Why? Because they'd run out of beer. That's how we decide where to live. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, but unfortunately, the Mayflower was not the first booze cruise. Uh, uh, sorry. Yeah. But but again, what the problem was, they literally had been sailing so long that they had run out of the small beer, the drinking beer, and were going to be reduced to drinking the water, which, again, they, it was kind of dicey. At that point, they said, you know, we're starting to run out of beer and other provisions. Maybe it's a good time for us to find some place to spend the winter. And of course, the rest, as they say, is history, right? Indeed. So follow up, everybody drank uh, and you talked about, you know, small beer. But if we're thinking about categorizing them, what are the different types of alcoholic beverages that were available in the 17th century to the curious drinker? Sure. Um, Beer and ale, which again are slightly different variations, they're malted beverages, right? We have ciders, either usually uh, apple or pear. Then you have the more fortified, you have stronger things like wines, which would have been imported from particularly from Portugal and Spain, in particular part of the Atlantic trade. We actually find a lot of uh, Portuguese ceramics on sites, early sites in Maine, which is a direct evidence of that direct trade with Portugal, right? Mm. Uh, As a part of like where our uh, um, fish there's a book, really great book by, on this written by the late Peter Pope called Turning Fish into Wine, which is about Newfoundland fishing fleet, but it's similar in Maine, where they're literally taking the Atlantic cod and shipping it over there. And what comes back? Wine. And also, and then to in addition to wine, fortified wine uh, like Madeira, which is one of my absolute favorites and is really kind of a colonial beverage, I think, that's kind of underrated these days. But, but also things like port as well and sherry, right? Um, one of the things that we learned, living confession for the first time, the mainly fans out there, uh, this pod is usually hosted in Providence, Rhode Island, where I am employed. Uh, but Rhode Island has a large Portuguese community, and so they have tons of delicious Portuguese wine and also Madeira and whatnot. Many Portuguese wine areas, they really didn't start developing their own kinds of wine for export as opposed to fortified stuff like Port and Madeira until after World War II. And so Portugal was basically an economic satellite of England's devoted to satisfying their desire for port and other Portuguese fortified wines. And so if you try some really, I love Portuguese red wines, as Robin can well attest (laughs) that she gets constantly plied with, oh, let's try this new one. There's a lot of exciting new wines available in Portugal grown from grapes that were historically used for port and are now being used for regular table wine. Wow. Uh, And so they're one of them. My favorite grape is the Tariga Nacional, and it's one of the major grapes used in port. And now they're being used for red wine and like the regular alcohol. I'll have to definitely try that. Yes. And so it's very... Uh, so if you want to get local varietals that are not like just replants of the master stuff in France or right. Italy, Portugal's the place to go yes. because they've only been doing this for like 50 years. Yeah. It's really exciting and also cheap. Uh, well, that's could, even better. Right? You can get good wine for like 15 bucks cool. in Portuguese. And so, and of course the other thing, so in addition though, even to yeah. like going up the scale, in addition to yeah. like the, the, the fortified wines, you also have, uh, of course, hard liquors. Um, in large part, some of them know, were new. Yes, the hard liquors, like thinking, wasn't gin a new invention? Relatively new, and that's more of an eighteen, more of an eighteenth-century thing okay. than than seventeenth. 
the, the ones they were drinking in New England in the 17th century were particularly was, was rum, which of course is distilled out of molasses, which is mm -hmm. a byproduct of the sugar industry, is a, is a, is a key one there. There was, were also, was some gin that was coming over too, though again, it's, it's not, okay. mostly that's more of a coming over from the Netherlands where it tends okay. to be more made in the 17th century, yeah. So let's bracket spirits because we're going to get to those. All right. All right. Uh, so Jeez. let's, uh, if we may, if we may uh, return, yes. uh, well, two other, two other questions in terms of types of, of booze because yep. you did a great job outlining some of the major ones. And so ciders with apples and perries with pears, yep. right? And I'm, yeah, excellent. And, and perry being sort of like the champagne of ciders, like ah. for special occasions. Like mm. holidays and things like that. Okay. Yes. I like it. Yeah. And then there are two other terms that some people might have heard of, but not know what's in them. So yeah. first of all, punch. punch. So you, different from today's punch. So when people, when when colonists talk about enjoying punch, what is in the punch? Yeah, that's, punch is really an 18th century thing. Okay. And it's served in a punch bowl. And it usually, it's actually, punch, I believe, is actually derived from, what, from I think it's from Hindi, meaning five, something I've been told. Um, and they're actually supposed to be like five ingredients in it, but essentially what you're talking about is usually a mixture of, of, of rum um, with, with, with juices, maybe like ju water, juice of, a, juice of a lime, some spices like nutmeg, things like that. And of course, there are many different variations on punches, but essentially, and then you drink it out of the communal punch bowl, which would have some witticism at the bottom of it, like, you know, drink till it's gone or something like that. <laughs> I say it's kind of like the, the 18th century equivalent of like, you know, pass out or beer pong, right? You okay. Know? Yeah. So that's, so that's all, you know, basically usually like with, um, you know, again, like some, some lemons or, or oranges or things like that, which again, too, were, were uh, in the 18th century, again, were hard to come by here and was an evidence of... You know, not just anybody could afford a punch bowl or could afford punch. You had to be reasonably, reasonably well off to do that. And, you know, then you'd grate some nutmeg over it. And oh. Yeah, exactly. Have you had 18th century style I have punch? had a replica 18th century punches. I can give you recipes for that. I, I've seen demostrations. Oh, that will be 100% posted yes. on our, on yes. our network. Yes, so. I even have a picture of him, of him doing it. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. So then the other one is a little fancier, or yes. at least more complex, and that is flip. Yes, flip. Flip is a, a is a, a heated combination. Actually, start off with with beer or ale, and you add rum to it and some spices as well, and then you actually either put it like in a I think it's called a flip horn, which is like a copper cone that you hold over the fire to heat it up or the more dramatic way is you you have all the ingredients stir it up into your tankard or mug and then you take the red hot poker out of the fire and stick it in it to heat it up because you drink it heated now my friend who also i can give you a recipe for that his 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 suggestion is you're probably just better off to microwave it you know? <laughs> okay but nowadays you know but so that's a, so that's a heated high octane beverage. Yes, I just get the vibe that it would be like uh, roasting marshmallows, where you stick it in the fire and you burn it. Like that would be the taste for the flip. But some people like that. No, yeah, exactly. Well, and the other one, of course, the other one too is that I that I was I've, I I've tried over the years has been hot buttered rum, which sounds disgusting, but is really good. Mm -hmm. And then there's syllabub and posset and all kinds. Oh, we could do a whole show on just a hard liquor. That will have to be yeah. Then some well. next season maybe next season. You know? That's right. That's <laughs> okay. right. Okay. And so there are modern reproductions of historic ales available, yes. and you have yes. kindly offered to yeah. share some with us. So, we're, so yeah. what, what's, the, what's this first version that we're trying, and so, what is the... Yeah, so actually, you know, sometimes there's a... Uh, and I've been involved in the past in making local reproductions here, and we can talk okay. about some of those, which are we try to be a little more accurate. What, what we got here today that we're going to be sampling from is from, um, is from Yard's brewery down in Philadelphia, right on the historic waterfront in, in Philly. And they do a series of historic beers, Ales of the Revolution, they call it. And uh, we're going to sample, we're sampling right now their, their, their spruce ale, 
which well, they, they call it <clears throat> Poor Richard's Spruce Ale. Ah, yes. uh, and Amber Ale calls for barley, molasses, and essence of spruce. We use locally sourced organic blue spruce clippings to create an ale as approachable as engaging as the man himself, that is Ben Franklin, poor Richard. Uh -huh. Spruce beer, though, was, was a really popular ale at the time. And get a nose Cheers, on that. Yeah. Cheers. And you hopefully get a little bit of the spruce out of that, right? Not the most common flavor you'd expect for in an ale. But we do know that from the 16th century... It tastes like Christmas. It does kind of, right? You know, like yeah. It. yeah. It's like a Christmas ale. You know, though, actually, that spruce was really good at presenting, preventing scurvy. Mm. It was actually used in the 16th century. We know um, in, in New France, the Native Americans showed some of the French explorers in the 1530s. Hey, drink this stuff and you won't get scurvy. Or, well, you know, won't get scurvy, won't get sick. It was certainly an additive that was used, but to some degrees it's evidence that, honestly, in colonial times, anything, any ingredient you could find you would put in <laughs> your, to make alcohol, right? Because this, we're talking about stuff that is mostly homemade, or the local tavern is making. This is not stuff that's imported from anywhere. It's locally grown and produced. And again, we talked about uh, every household needing beer or ale. So for the most part, this is stuff that is gonna be a household task, usually by the, oftentimes by the lady of the house, or if you have servants, by the servants, uh, on a regular basis. If I may, what are some examples of very unusual ingredients that aren't <laughs> so, spruce? So, yeah, spruce is just the be beginning of it. So. We, we need to talk about a little bit, of, I guess, about, about beer and ale and how you make them. Um, and Please maybe back up a second and explain the difference, okay? Because yeah. that gets to the ingredients. So historically, people in medieval England drank ale. Matter of fact, when you see Robin Hood and you see Friar Tuck there with a big jug of something, he's drinking ale. Ale is a malted beverage, as is beer. The difference is ale does not include hops. Oh. Hops is something that's introduced to England from the continent for the first time in the 1520s. Doesn't really catch on until the, really, till the 1600s. It takes a while because, again, like the English are very suspicious of anything that comes over from the <laughs> continent, right? Particularly from, from places like the Netherlands or France, right? So what happens is you, you have a malted beverage, but you need something as a bittering and preservative agent. And for old-fashioned ale, what they use are any sort of range of herbs. To, to, to preserve and also to season. So things like rose hips, for example, or nutmeg, or clove, or you name it. That cinnamon? Is, could use cinnamon, but that's a strong one. Usually mm. you don't. It's okay. a little bit, maybe like in a special ale. There are some that you use cinnamon for that we can talk about, like if you're making a cocktail, that would definitely have cinnamon in it. But that's a that's a whole different kettle. Some of, of those Christmas beers have cinnamon in them yes. now. So that's yes, they do, thinking. absolutely. That's ales, but then when hops become more popular, they start using those as a replacement for 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 the um, the spices. As a matter of fact, today you know that's so what we what we call an ale in the 17th century. Today we would actually call a gruit, right? G R U I T, is the term that's used here, which is actually uh, an old German word for herbed or spiced. Because ales today have hops in them, I thought. Like so. Also today. So here's the so <clears throat> the problem is so back then ales no hops, beer hops, but today. We have a completely different definition of beer versus ale, and it all has to do with, 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 with fermentation, right? Where it, it basically depends on the type of, of yeast that you use and whether it's top fermenting or bottom fermenting, and one's ale and one's, one's beer. So it's completely different. And so today we use the words basically interchangeably. Again, we're getting way too technical here, Ian, and especially if we, once we start drinking spruce beer, we probably should <laughs> but, but Robin, to your question, I apologize. So the question, so the question is like, what are the different type of ingredients? Well, to make beer, you know, actually, the Germans would say you only need four things. They have the Reinheitsgebot, the German purity laws of the 16th century, where you need 
malt, you need hops, you need water. And originally they don't even say yeast because they don't really understand yeast, but eventually it becomes yeast. And beer should consist of nothing else but those four things. Mm. Now, other countries like in England, or particularly the Belgians, who are famous for throwing anything into their beer, would completely disagree, right? And basically the, the colonists here would disagree too, because here's the problem. It takes a while to grow hop. Hops grow wild here, but they're not particularly good. If you want to cultivate hops, it takes a few years, at least three, four years to get them going. And actually, I have some hop vines growing out here. You can see where they're growing mm. the bowl. But the first two or three years, you don't have them. So what do you drink? Also, too, you don't have lots of malt, lots of barley, right? Well, basically, what you need is something with sugar in it that you can put into the wort that is the kettle that you're boiling the ingredients in because you, you want those sugars in your wort so that when you put the yeast in, the yeast our wonderful friend that makes alcohol, can eat that sugar and turn it into alcohol. So colonial New Englanders would literally make virtually beer out of anything. Um, anything that was sweet enough for the yeast to eat. Anything, yes. And, um, Cranberry? It, huh? Well, you know, that's a really good one. I've never heard of that, but I, I, I wouldn't doubt it. But I'll give, I'll give you an example. There's a ballad. There's an early 17th century New England ballad that survives, that maybe as early as the 1630s, called the, the Forefathers um, Song. And it says, one of the verses goes, If barley be wanting to make into malt, we must be contented and think it no fault. For we can make liquor to sweeten our lips of pumpkins and parsnips and walnut tree chips. So basically, anything with sugar in it, you're going to boil it up and turn it into something. And a matter of fact, we actually have made in the past a sample of the earliest surviving recipe for an ale in Maine. And John Jocelyn, who I know Ian knows well, and he's an old old friend of ours, right, Ian? Indeed. Um, famous for several books that he wrote of, of his visits here to Maine in the 1600s, um, where he lived in, in um, Scarborough, present-day Scarborough, uh, then Black Point, where his, his brother was commander of the garrison. He publishes his recipe uh, in 1672, in his book, New England's Rarities Discovered, which is like the first natural history for New England. And he says, in that part of the country where I abode, we made our beer of molasses, water, bran, not even malt, but just like the husks, right? Bran, chips of sassafras, mm. there's your root beer flavoring, and a little wormwood, well-boiled. Oh. Okay, so you know what wormwood's used for, right? That's like absinthe. Yes. And it doesn't give you hallucinogenic trips, at least if you, unless you distill it, I guess. But in this case, what it is, is it's a bittering agent. Um. So you need that to bitter and preserve, right? So that's, so that's the first the first recipe we have surviving in New England for beer or ale. And in particular, you can see here, it doesn't have hops, so technically it would have been an ale. So anything goes, and that's why it's kind of fun re reproducing these beers and ales, because they, you can put whatever into them you want, Robert. How what did it think? taste? So here's the deal. The more accurate you make it, the worse it tastes. Mm. And matter of fact, I like your yards, what they sort of say here, a series of historic beer recreations based on the original recipes of our founding fathers and other places they'll say inspired by. Because uh, yes. my point is like, if you really wanted to create this stuff accurately, you wouldn't be all that excited about drinking it. Because first off, also too, by the way, all of these would originally been brewed over open hearths, which means they're all like smoked beers. Today, they'd be like what we call a Roush beer. So they'd all have a smokiness to it. And then... You know, sanitation really wasn't an important priority at the time as well, too. I'm sure the mate, like today, everything's in these big stainless steel vats and, you know, all the rest in the sense yeah. that they didn't do that. And I'm sure considering how much cases and everything 
goes into the flavor of different beverages, I can't imagine that wouldn't change the taste. I'm just reaching into the fridge yeah. here, and I'm going to try pull out uh, Jefferson's Golden Ale, because uh, yes. the founding fathers were particularly well known for making their own beer on their plantations, and we have recipes from uh, both Thomas Jefferson and from George Washington. And again, these are inspired by, so in other words, for yes. so I, I, now, for example, I'm opening a bottle of what they call Jefferson's Golden Ale. A Golden Ale pays homage, again, not like we're trying to imitate necessarily, pays homage. Here, why don't you pour some of that, Robin? Absolutely. Please. We created this recipe employing honey, rye, and wheat, you see? Hmm. Not at all what you would think of as the normal ingredients for beer. Just like the beer brewed at Monticello during Jefferson's time. So it has, it's his, his recipe, you know? So, hmm. so um, again, you can brew with anything you want. And that's kind of the, to me, honestly, that's sort of the fun of this. And honest, there was many ingredients, if you think about this, beer then and now is as complex as wine. We, t we tend to think of like wine being, oh, the terroir, and, or even as too, there's terroir even in, in mm. your malt and your hops, and so it's kind of, yeah. So this is a more of like of a golden sort of, they call it a tavern ale. What do you think, Ian? This tastes more familiar to me, like... Yeah. I mean, and I, I liked, this, I liked the, the difference of the spruce. This one, I was kind of looking for the honey. I didn't find it as much. Robin, what do you think? Yeah, it smells sweet, and it tastes bitter. Maybe can yeah. taste it. It's, 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 and it's yeah. also very high in alcohol. How much is that one? Eight percent. Dear God! Mm, yeah, the, now the spruce—the spruce was only like five. Not a small beer. A very no, big beer. exactly. Well, and I think too. Again, they're again they're they're trying to make things that I think that are acceptable to the to the American palate, and because uh, the first about twenty years ago, Sam Adams produced I think some of the first historic beers, and of course Dogfish Head Brewery is another one that produces a lot of historic beers mm. that are actually based on uh, microbiology for archaeology sites. Um, I, I think what they discovered was those first beers that that uh, that Sam Adams made. No one they were horrible. And I, I apologize. I love Sam Adams. They make some very good beers, and and their owner um, Jim Cook is a fascinating guy, um, real real sort of pioneer businessman beer maker. But that stuff was they only made it once or twice because it was not good, right? I think they realized like it needs to be more inspired by, in the spirit of, mm -hmm. using the ingredients of, right? <laughs> Did you ever have Midas Touch? Yes. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Midas. For, for yeah. our listeners, yes. this is the beer. It was a recreation, or maybe inspired by the recipe found from drinking jugs uncovered yeah. by archaeologists in the tomb of the what i think the babylonian king who scholars think was the inspiration for the king midas whose touch supposedly yeah. is you know uh, turned everything to gold and here there's a couple a couple of books i have here from patrick mcgovern who was like the uh, microbiology archaeologist if you will who his, did the analyses of those pots oh. and then work with Sam Calagione, the owner of Dogfish Head. And, yes. and there is a connection to Maine here because Calagione, as a kid, spent his summers with his family in Dogfish Head in Southport, Maine. Even though he ended up brewing in Delaware, yes, he he's named from, it Dogfish He's Head. from down there, but he named yeah. it after that, that, that childhood memory of, of fun summer trips to Maine. And he occasionally comes up this way, you know, I guess still to this day. But anyhow, they actually have expanded with microbiology. They, they have Midas Touch. They have a number of other beers like that. That they've done the same kind of deal with, where they've literally been able to try to. They, they have one for the, the, the uh, for Aztec beers and some others as well too. It's kind of cool stuff. Yeah. I didn't know the Aztecs had beer. Well, yeah, it's more like a sort of a chocolate sort of. Uh, but it was fermented. Yes, exactly. Ah, there yeah, we go. Yeah, of course, everybody, everybody had see everybody had fermented beverages pretty much one time or another. Pulling this out of your fridge makes me ask: <laughs> Did, as far as we know, 
did the uh, in the 17th century were residents of York were they trying to drink their beer cold or did they not care and was it just room temperature well they had to here's the problem you have to store beer at a reasonably cool temperature because if you if you don't it goes bad especially when you're when you're making it and um, I like to point out that one of the favorite stories I like to tell is about Thomas Gorges who was the deputy governor of the colony who was sent out here by his kinsman Sir Ferdinando Gorges who was the proprietor of Maine and he arrives here in 1640 as a, actually I call him a young college boy. He just, he just become a lawyer, gone to the Inns of Court in London. He's like 20 years old. And he, he writes to his father when he gets here and he says, I think he's trying to show his parents what a good housekeeping guy this young bachelor is right out of college. I brew beer one day and is good stale beer by the next. And we drink it till we have made an end. This again, I think of the college kid here, right? And then we drink water till we can get more beer. And he, then he says though, but listen to this, he says, why are we drinking the beer that fast? Well, the weather is hot that quickly sours it. And likewise, I want for hops to preserve. But now I am making a cellar and have sent to the Bay, Massachusetts Bay, for hops. And in fact, when I excavated um, this site back in the 1980s, we actually found the cellar that he built at the governor's mansion to store his beer in. It's about a 15 by 20 foot cellar, about four or five feet deep. And you again, like below grade, it would be cool enough and preserve it because otherwise the beer will just really sour in a hot main summer. So they wouldn't drink the room temperature, no real refrigeration, but if you, you would cellar it, basically, and that was what you So on that note, you mentioned getting stuff from the bay. So for somebody living in York or Kittery or Wells, and that's, well, that's basically it in the 17th century for the, the English colonists, barring a few little towns. Well, well the, I mean, the people at Pemaquid would probably sorry, disagree with sorry. you, but you know, yes, that's okay. Said, basically, basically. Well, yeah, I know. We think, we think it's only this part of York County Clearly. that really mattered. So of these, in, in 17th century Maine, the typical colonist who's not gorgeous, um, <laughs> are they getting most of the stuff they drink? Are they brewing it at home? Yes. Versus buying it from neighbors versus buying it from farther away than neighbors. We think in most cases, again, this would have been like a household duty or responsibility if you wanted to have it. But also, too, in each town by, by Massachusetts, who ran the ran Maine most of the time, as we know, and that's a whole other episode. Of course. Um, the, 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 the colonial laws usually said you needed at least one or two licensed taverns in town. Because also, too, they served, they were important, tab, we can, again, we could talk for hours about taverns, too, but they're really important. You need a place where travelers can spend the night safely, can get a decent meal, but also, too, where people can go and meet for entertainment, to have a drink, and also, too, where, like, the local courts would meet, and where, and where the, the, we, we know that in many cases, you know, they would literally be meeting in the tavern. When they the, ride the circuit sessions. on the court. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, there was that available, but normally the stuff that you were drinking, unless you're going down to, down to the tavern for companionable pint with your with your with your mates, uh, you mo it's mostly home consumption. Again, using what ingredients you can grow or can buy locally. Okay, you've done archaeology. What is the evidence you found in Maine of the the bottle of spirits or wine or, or or beer or whatever that came from the farthest away? Like, where did it come from? So, well, we have we have records indicating this again like this whole Atlantic trade which is suggesting that stuff is coming in from throughout the Atlantic world particularly there's a lot of trade here Portugal with the Azores with Fayol in particular and we I can't prove to you I mean I, I they talk about um, we, we know that the ceramics are coming over here and you know I don't have, I've never actually dug up any evidence of Portuguese wine but we find we find some of the Portuguese artifacts here the ceramics the redwares and I, I'm almost certain that we would have had those spirits coming over from here as well for the wines to drink because New Englanders weren't making wines. And also the molasses, of course, 
to make into rum is coming out of the Caribbean mm -hmm. um, and is a byproduct of, the, of sugar. By the way, having said that too, we do know that, that sugar was actually refined right here in New England, places like Portsmouth, um, other places along the coast of New England, Boston. Domino Sugar is a Boston company, right? Were it's there any refineries in Maine? Or was that too far out of the way? Well, I know they were doing it in Portsmouth, so I'm betting they might, mm -hmm. I bet you they were doing it, but I know certainly weren't there later on refineries in Portland? I'm not certain. But I'm I, sure there there I was a huge Portland sugar fire. Yes. In, uh, but that's after the Civil War. Yeah, and but so, still, the, the refining goes on into the 19th and early 20th. Remember, true. remember the the Great Molasses explosion and the molasses flood in the north end of Boston that just celebrated its 100th anniversary a year or two ago, where literally a number of people drowned in a huge wave of molasses, where these huge tanks ruptured and literally flooded the streets of the north end again because they were they were refining molasses into sugar. And so I, I suspect they were in Portland too, but I'm okay. you have to check with an expert on yeah. on, on, on Portland molasses. On Portland molasses. Yeah. Since we're drinking these these heritage recipes, you've talked about some of these ingredients. Are there other important differences that we've missed between not to beat up on them, but what uh, the the heritage recipes and the sorts of stuff that somebody today might encounter, uh, either at a, a more local, you know, brewery like Allagash or even a big one like Coors. Yeah, so I mean, I think well. So first off, I'm a I'm a huge supporter. I'm a I'm a home brewer and have been mm -hmm. actually since my undergrad days in college. It took about a 20 year hiatus when my kids were growing up, but um, back mm -hmm. at it again now a little bit at their encouragement. But you know, I mean, a craft the craft brewing industry to me has been wonderful and uh, rise in in New England and elsewhere in America. In part because of other cool things like it's part of the whole grow local, eat local sort of phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? Which is wonderful to see. But also too the, the sense of using locally sourced ingredients. As opposed to the big, you know, Coors Miller, Bud kind of like uh, conglomerates where they, they tend to like, it's much more standardized. And frankly, I believe it's mostly rice and corn, yes. Yeah. But what's, but what's amazing is how consistent the beers mm -hmm. are, right? I mean, in that sense, you could, you could have a Budweiser made in, in, in Williamsburg or one made in Merrimack or one, one made out in Los Angeles, and it's all going to taste identical. Now, we can comment about the quality of that, but it's going to be identical and quality control as opposed to making a local local brewery that makes a five or 10 or, you know, um, gallon or, you know, a couple barrel batch. And even though they use the same recipe, you know, maybe the, the temperature is a little different today. The, the weather's a little bit different. Um, maybe it's a little different type of malt you're getting that works. So there's, there's a lot more variation, but to me, that was kind of make it, makes it interesting is those localisms. And again, too, it's, to me, it kind of gives a hint of the variety of products and ingredients and, and beers and ales that you would have been able to have here in colonial times. So if at all possible, yeah, if you know of a local place, and they do sometimes, uh, some of the local breweries here in New England do occasionally, you know, do one-offs or special special uh, events or for sometimes in partnership with local historical society or museum or something, we'll, we'll, we'll create a local beer. And so I, you know, highly recommend okay. trying some of that if you get the opportunity to do that. Okay. One of the big differences is just how local and varied they were. Exactly. Okay. As he reaches into get the George Washington. Oh uh, yes, the, the George the, Washington. The, the last one. The last one to see. To it would have been appropriate to do George Washington first and set the precedence of the various Ooh, ways. Precedence? Did you say? Or did you, <laughs> uh, but well, you know why we didn't is because this is heavier. a this is heavier. It's a porter. It's a darker beer, uh, and so um, here you take as much as you like. Sure. Here. It's uh, you know taste testing. You oh, usually would go with a lighter. Oh, okay. Oh, that makes sense. But this again too. This is um, this is they describe it as detailed in a letter from the general to his officers during the war. Washington's recipe employs molasses, 
to aid fermentation, again, yes, you have to have the, the sugars there, and give a rich caramel aroma to this robust roasty ale. Mm. So again, now I this need is, a question. I have yes. a question for context. Did he yep. just write the letter to his officer saying, hey, I brewed this great beer, you gotta try it? Or was he being a micromanager and saying, the beer for the troops must be brewed in this measure so that they get the proper amount of molasses and this and that and the other thing? Well, I, I don't know because when I've read about this before, I thought this was a recipe that actually came from Mount Vernon. That mm. was, I didn't realize it was in a letter to the to the officers like that micromanaging the war. But it, I'm, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if Washington was, was sort of micromanaging the war effort. Is that, That's this why is, I asked. This, yeah. is, this is how you make, this is how you make, make beer for, for your troops so mm. that they will like it. Make it like we do back down in yeah. Mount Vernon, you know, but I don't know if it was George's or Martha's recipe or whose. But, yeah. you know, it's actually, I think of the three to me, it's maybe the most most drinkable, but I like dark beers. What do you think? I like dark beers. This mm-hmm. this is sweeter yeah. than a typical porter. It, it absolutely is sweeter than a typical porter. You know, I think of, because I think we think of porter being more sort of on the roasty kind of side. Coffee. Yes. It has a yeah. it has a really well yes that's does, a selling point for Robbins coffee yeah the coffee well you know to me this, this is delicious this yeah. is more more to me I mean a little bit more like a brown ale than a than a porter right because again because the porters mm-hmm. should still have some of those roasted malts in it and this doesn't really yeah. this doesn't really seem to they they say I'm trying to see if I taste too. them like I mean clearly the yeast eats the molasses but still I want to see if I pretty good mm-hmm. that'll pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I can. I can drink more of that. Yeah. I, well, again, all these are are, are 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 not bad. But again, I don't. I don't know how much spruce beard really mm. went to drink. I think you know. I mean, if I was if I was coming down with scurvy, maybe. Maybe for flip. Maybe for flip. Yes. Exactly. So I think yes. we should rank. I think we should rank the three beers. Don't you think? Mm. Um. So Robin, how would you rank? How would you rank the three? Do you need to taste them again? To no, know. I mean, to, you know. I think so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. I guess. Straight from the bottle? Is that what we're... Sure. That's okay. my friends here. Well, you know, you know the we you can brew with virtually the, the, the maybe the our, the favorite beer that I brewed. And I, I've brewed a number of beers over here. A, a, a good friend of mine, Butch Hileshorn, is the former oh, owner of, uh, of Earth Eagle um, Brewings in, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, mm. And um, he and I would kind of brew, two or three times a year would brew historic recipes. And uh, that's when we brewed the Jocelyn Ale. We also brewed a bunch of others. And I think maybe the favorite was Cock Ale. And you want to talk about wild ingredients, Robin? This is this is kind of off the off the charts if if you think about it. Because uh, listen to this: the recipe to make cock ale, and this, by the way, was William of Orange, As William the Third. C O C K. Correct. Okay. And it was a double entendre then as now. Um, but to to brew it, you take um, nutmeg, mace, two cocks, that is roosters, boil them. You, you feathers know, you pl- and all. No, no. You pluck them, okay. flay them, boil them, and essentially what you do is. You, uh, you you make your you make your your, your base beer, um, and then you basically put a oh, blade fruit maybe like uh, again like orange or okay. uh, lemon maybe spice, um, ginger root, lime peel, lumps of sugar, um, and then you add to that basically the cock, and then you let it just sit for two or three weeks, and then you bottle it. Why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a lot okay, yeah. so, questions. Well, I think in part, I will say in part, again, like in part because it was a double entendre then as well as now, because it was believed to be, shall we say, a male enhancement. Okay. Oh. And, and in fact, um, it's a really, actually it was in the late 17th century, 
there was this great um, spoof brochure published in 1674 called The Women's Petition Against Coffee, representing the public consideration of the grand inconveniences accruing to their sex from excessive use, the drying and enfeebling liquor. In other words, basically, in the late 17th century, people thought that, that, that coffee was not good for one's manhood. This, pu this publication says, before coffee arrived, Englishmen were, quote, the ablest performers in Christendom, but our gallants being every way so Frenchified, they have become mere cocksparrows. And then they say, um, drinking coffee may be severe penalties be forbidden to all persons under the age of threescore, and that instead, therefore, they drink lusty, nappy beer, cock ale. You see that this was supposed to be the, the British manly thing to do, to drink cock ale. And there's accounts of like, you know, of women taking their husbands and dragging them down to the tavern, having them quaff down a couple of pints of cock ale and then running home with them, you see. And you can read between the lines any way you want there. So I think there's in that not sense, much to read between lines. That's pretty no. much out there. <laughs> to me, I have to say this is the X-rated episode. Yeah, this this reeks though of see. I would have put it off as sometimes people will do that. Well, I like meat. I like beer. I'm going to put meat in my beer. Like, well, it also well there was a medieval tradition of putting meat in your beer, and as a matter of fact, um, yeah, for a long time. Yeah. Oh. Um, okay. Bear bears meat. Oh. Hogs well. literally hogs heads. I mean, like you know, you you do a um um a smoked hog's head and actually put it in. Yeah, so it, it was not on. It's not entirely uncommon to do that. Again, anything that may add more to convert to alcohol. Yeah, it's, again, to us is kind of like no. But I've I've, I've actually again I've, I've helped make um, what we call the real moosehead ale. No. Yeah, um, but you wouldn't have any idea. It was the most the lightest, most delicious, like summer ale you can imagine. Yeah, and you would have no idea that it had a little bit of moose meat in it. Now, now and again, I'm going to start to look if beers are vegan when I well, drink Well, honestly, you know, and honestly, uh, I know at Earth Eagle when they first made the hogshead beer, um, they didn't post that because people thought, oh, a hogshead, like an old barrel. It's like, no, hogshead. Uh, and so they actually, they do put in, you know, I think most places now would actually put up signs like, well, like, this is not a vegetarian. This is not a vegetarian beer. I guess as weird. long as you warn people, there's people who like a lot of weird stuff. I mean, there's the yep. the coffee that's been pooped out by cats. Well, see, exactly. Um, right. You know. I mean, yeah, but they were wild, weren't they? I mean, it's not domesticated. Yeah, so, I don't right? know now, but yeah, like cats. whatever they were. Well, this so sounds like witch. I know you you work on witches, but if you're <laughs> naming all of these strange ingredients, I'm hearing like eyes of newt and. Yes. Well, it's kind of is, and in fact, you know, yeah, we actually. We actually did make a beer when my um, my witch, Salem, Salem Witch Trials book, Storm of Witchcraft, came out. We actually made a special beer in honor of that for like a book signing at the, at, the, at uh, Earth Eagle. And we called it, actually we called it Gallows Harvest. And it had um, parsnips and heirloom squash in it. And also too, the hops back then to, were much milder. Today we have all these super varieties of hops um, and they're over the top. So you use like a really kind of a mild, like a Hallertau kind of German, mild German hops. Mm. And, a, and, a, and a fairly mild uh, malt as well. Like a Maris Otter is a real English malt that has a kind of biscuity, nutty flavor. And I think the problem is now is most Americans, it's all like super imperial, double, triple, whatever, you know. How many how many ABVs and, and how many, and how many uh, international bittering units can you get into your... To new your beers, but I think that it's a good thing too about colonial beers. A were much riot more of than hops, in yeah, the, yeah. And, you, and again, you even and even then too, there were even like knockoff beers. I mean, like the one that we made is called a, a, a mum or mummy, M U M M E, which was a the, the beer made in Brunswick, Germany, in the 17th century. 
in this by the late 17th century the English are making a knockoff of it using like completely different set of recipes so listen think about this in, in a for recipes in a, in a beer wheat malt a bushel of oat malt ground beans yes ground beans in the cask you add fir and birch tips three handfuls of cardamom um, oh yeah um, betony marjoram penny royal by the way penny royal is an abortion phasant that tastes like menthol so you know again like you have to be really careful with what you're brewing nowadays and some of the stuff seeds of cardamom barberries uh, and you know and all the sorts of stuff you put in together and Frankly, this is, and then you like let it sit for like a year and then you drink it. And it kind of like, yeah, this was one was kind of like, really? This is like, no, you know, menthol beer is just not, not something that should be consumed. So, you know, but again, in the 17th century, I think, you know, if you've run out of anything to drink and this is what you've got, you're going to, you're going to drink it, right? Yeah. So, (laughs) wow. All right. So you mentioned wives not wanting husbands to drink coffee you know all yes, the rest all of the stuff so talking about who drank what yeah uh, were there different glasses for different classes are there upper are the elites who drink maybe that's obvious but elites drink imported stuff poor folks drink homebrew or something but is there also a class inflection in terms of yeah like types of beverages people drank that were alcoholic well all, all i can tell you is when i when i study for the 17th century i don't necessarily see that but we don't have enough evidence to say what's taking place or not i mean i certainly suspect that's the case where people like the gorgeous family has the ability to import nice wines from portugal whereas like they the people who work for them are the local or the next door neighbors who were poor farmers do not but we don't see that in the record i do think i think where you do start to see that i know you definitely see that in the in the 18th century you know where again where you have like this whole thing of like the whole sort of ceremonies of punch and toasting the king and um you know again like along with like the rise of like tea and having the proper tea service and everything that to some degrees i think you know it becomes more socialized and and, and drinking becomes sort of a sign of status and class and that you know that you that you want to offer people guests like you know the top shelves kind of stuff right so i think but i i my hunch is that's more of an more of an 18th century phenomenon part of that whole sort of, uh, you know, that sort of the growing consumer revolution sort of phenomena that we see here, right? The refinement of America, as Richard Bushman calls it in his book, as as opposed to in the 17th century. I don't think there was evidence of that, but nowhere near as strongly. So in the 17th century, there wasn't as much reputable versus disreputable drinks. Whereas I'm thinking 18th century, by the time of the gin craze, there's all this morality. People talked about gin yeah. like they talked about heroin in the 1980s. Where, yes. Oh, don't let the gin get you. And yeah. gin lane. And so. Yes, yeah, gin lane versus versus Beer Street, the Hogarth, famous Hogarth yeah. Prince. Yes, absolutely. So was that much present in colonial America? Or? I think it yeah, absolutely was in the 18th century here. Okay. I think that's certainly the case, right? But again, earlier on, I think we don't have, again, we don't have the evidence to, to, to show that as much. But I think you certainly, that's become a problem where gin was sort of seen, I think, as the by the mid 18th century as being this huge scourge on society, right? You're right, it was it was like a hard drug. I, I also think too, is the things in New England were a little more probably loose than they were over in England. Robin's like, that's a shame. I would live on gin lane. Like, yes, you know, we, I'm we, like, we, gin should help with scurvy, right? Well, like you know, gin, we, gin, um, yeah, we, we have a friend who's actually, her, her goal in life is to make the perfect gin and tonic. I think that's a pretty worthy goal, don't you? Mm-hmm. And But also having said that, you know, the botanical, some of the local, I'm not really into distilling, but you could do an interesting show, I think, even on like distilling because things like gin, in the 18th century, there was no like formal definition of gin. It was just herbs, but it could be kind of any kind of herbs or botanicals. And I think we immediately, we tend to associate gin today with juniper berries, 
but I've had one or two types of gin that, that modern distilleries make that don't feature juniper, but feature other herbs. And it's a, it's, it's a wonderful, it's a very different mixture of herbs. Cause kind of like, again, like gin, like beer could kind of almost be anything, right? Mm -hmm. There you go. I'm giving you more ideas for future episodes. <laughs> it's and, true. It's and it true. sounds like Robin would be happy more with that too. More occasions to drink at the snowshoe. Exactly. Mountain. Snowshoe rock. The exactly. Snowshoe, 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 snowshoe mountain stores. sounds much snowshoe more majestic. Snowshoe mountain. Snowshoe tavern. I like yeah. it. Yeah. So then if we're talking about different drinks for different people, yep. so we should mention various colonial traders sold alcohol to the Wabanaki people. Oh, God, here um, we go, yes. And there is, I think among the popular culture, there's a lot of lore about uh, colonists selling uh, alcohol to Native Americans, yep. and it goes kind of all over the place. Sometimes it gets really caricatured in all kinds of different directions. Yep. So you know more about this than most. And so in Maine, what did Wabanaki people drink when they did drink? And where'd they get it from? Right, well, they're, they're getting their, their uh, alcoholic beverages, as far as I know, principally from the, the English, right? And, on, and it is certainly true that when they're given access to, to you know, distilled spirits or, or even beer or wine, that Native Americans don't react well to it. And it's, I think it's, it seems fairly evident that Native Americans really didn't have my knowledge didn't really have much for alcoholic beverages before the arrival of Europeans because it seems to be something that they that they really there's there doesn't seem to be any evidence of like really temperate sort of drinking unfortunately you know it's um and again that's not a not a not an indictment of Native American society but just the simple fact that, that, that it's not that I don't think their society was used to having these sorts of things and it and was used in different should, ways yeah and we should add I mean especially with the Wabanakis and other Algonquin speakers at that climate zone. I mean, historically for them, they tended to, they'd catch food, they'd get their food and they'd eat it. Right. They would store some some yeah. sort of right. plants they, they grew, yeah. but other than that, there wasn't a huge tradition of yep. storing a lot. It was more, here we have, we right. killed a moose, we did this. Yeah. And they had eat all feasts right. even, right? And, 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 so, and if something ferments, it's by accident, right? Right. And, and so yeah. the point is, so if you have if you have food, you share it until yep. it's gone. Exactly. And then you find more. If you have something to drink, you share it till it's gone, presumably. Yep. So, so you're not gonna you're not gonna have distilled beverages. But it right. is but it is Or rather, right. in, in the point is when they get them in the colonial period, in the same way that all cultures incorporate new inventions into their existing yep. cultural you know, understandings of the world. Yep. And so if your culture is, here's what we've got in front of us, we might as well polish it off because that's what we do. Yeah, right. you get a keg. Correct, you get a keg, you're going to drink it. But particularly, right. and particularly too though, it's, there is, it is clear, I mean, the stereotype is, is certainly true to the sense that we know that there are examples where unscrupulous English traders used alcohol to, shall we say, lubricate a fur trade, right? In some cases to take advantage of Native Americans. And there are even accounts, and these are actually up the coast in the 17th century, probably in present day like New Brunswick. One of the big scourge of, of, of New England in the 17th century were these um, coastal traders who were basically these guys operating off of boats who would trade first with fur trade for the Native Americans and trade them European goods. But again, what they would do is they would liquor them up and trade with them. And there were cases of literally of Native Americans, um, you know, um, becoming inebriated, passing out, and then freezing to death overnight. Just, just a horrific kind of problem. And the problem too in this case is these are not like the local, most of the local fur traders who lived 
in town were good neighbors. And again, they want repeat business. They don't want to kill their customers. They don't want them the customers getting upset and burning down their, their house, whatever, right? So they were good parts of the community, which were these destabilizing elements, these coasters coming up and down the coast going like, yeah, let's stop at that village and look up the Indians, get some good pelts cheap, and then scram and go up the next coast, right? So um, it, there, you have these kind of these disreputable fur traders who, amongst other things, I think, are, you know, they're taking advantage of Native Americans any way they can, and sometimes it's by by uh, use of excessive alcohol. And that's so that since that's I think that that sort of image, there's certainly some some truth to it of them really taking advantage of native people. All right, but as you said, it also gets exaggerated sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. In my own research, I found by the 18th century, in talks between governors of well Massachusetts and Maine and the Wabanakis, the arguments boil down to. By the 1720s and 30s, the government of Massachusetts was trying to limit the trade right. at the request of Wabanaki leaders who were really conducting in certain ways like the region's first war on drugs. Yes, yeah, right. But the tension was those corrupt, shady traders, even though they charged more prices and they treated people badly, they would come to you and they were more convenient. So they were sort of like buying something at a convenience store and paying more. And also, you know, right. Shady. I mean, and that's the whole effort, like to get it. Could you, uh, in the treaty negotiations, to say, can you build the trading post, you yes. know, closer to us? We don't want to go all the way to Falmouth or Portland. Correct. Build it, build it up on the Kennebec, build it up on the Penobscot, so that we can buy local, right? Right. But and also, we don't have to yeah. patronize the creeps. But and exactly, and also too, though we know that that's a problem as early as the 1660s. There's um, that the trading post in Concord, New Hampshire. Is actually again they 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 give like a barrel of rum to the Indians who are there to trade, and the Indians drink, you know, a big party celebration as there would be, you know, hey, here's a keg, let's kill it, and of course in the process too, unfortunately they get one Native American gets so inebriated that he actually kills one of the fur traders. The reason we know about it is because there was a a murder case that ended before the, the you know the government, and literally in the proceedings in the trial, the Native American um, Sagamore is going like, look, I've told you before. Don't give this stuff. Don't have this stuff at the trading post. This is this is not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for us. Get it out of here, right? So there were these early concerns about, in this case, and this isn't even a coastal trade. Again, this is in Concord, New Hampshire, present mm-hmm. Concord, New Hampshire in the 1660s. Yeah. But again, that's the edge of the frontier that is completely unregulated, right? Right. So, yeah. And it does, I think, it would surprise moderns that there's these arguments and where even, uh, you know, like Massachusetts leadership who don't necessarily deserve that much credit for being quote-unquote pro-Indian. No. Yeah, they don't. They nevertheless, many of them are actually trying very hard to regulate the trade. Yeah. And they are, on that score anyway, often seeing somewhat eye-to-eye with indigenous leaders. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and that their conflict is on other things. Yep, yeah, the, exactly. the best... Uh, the best sort of brouhaha report I read is that I think it was I'm not unfortunately all I have is the receipts for the damages I don't um, I don't have the uh, an account of what happened but there were some Penobscots were invited to oh I think Boston in the 1730s yes and they were invited aboard a ship it was a it was a pretty nice ship uh, and they were allowed to like party or be in the cabin of like the captain's cabin of the ship and it had press the guests it had like you know really beautiful windows and the doors and stuff like that and they were also treated to drinks because mm-hmm. there was there was expense receipts for that yeah. and it just after they left 
whoever was reporting to the Massachusetts legislature said, look, uh, you guys got to stop inviting them down here because they, they totally trashed this, this cabin and we had to replace all the glass mm-hmm. and they were, they were doing all this stuff, but we don't, we don't know exactly. Like for all I know, they just weren't used to well, but, and, uh, yeah, being yeah, okay. in, a, in a place right. where there's a w- window in the door that you got to close it oh, gently true. or something. But also know. too, there was this thing, you know, if you think about it, I mean, in a native American society uh, of the era, um, you know, the one of the goals um, of, of sort of Vision Quest actually would be to to try to achieve that dreamlike trance state where you'd commun- communicate and walk with your ancestors, right, and, True. and, and be in harmony with them. And frankly, you know, um, a, a good bottle of rum could be conceived as a shortcut. Yeah, to but that, I know? don't think they're going to do that on a diplomatic junk. No, I, I agree. So no, I, no, these, not, these no. were senior diplomats. No, I agree, but I'm just saying. Is, but as far as like you know, if, again, it gets to the whole issues of like how different societies sure. use different foodways and use things like alcohol, and and I and I so I guess what I'm sort of saying is I'm oh. not trying to be judgmental here. Oh, right, just sort right. of saying yeah. is that is that the, there there are lots of explanations as to why Native Americans may have may have behaved and drank the way they did that. Is without trying to use like modern, uh, right? Let's mo- modern interpretations on that. In well, and you right? still see these pretty like racist caricatures and stuff yeah. about and, of, of yeah. Native Americans. But and having said that, maybe it's it, maybe it's, it's fair to let me explain though. It, it wasn't it wasn't just the Native Americans who who occasionally drank more than they should have. But yeah. the main tavern scenes, and again, we could talk all day about this. But um, there were lots of body taverns in in Maine in the 17th century. An example of this sounds like something ripped from today's headlines. Listen to this. And, uh, this shows up in a court session in 1670 at, um, at, the ta- at a tavern in what's now Berwick, Maine, where uh, Daniel Goodwin confessed that he struck Humphrey Spencer on the head with a stool. And Goodwin was the, was the tavern keeper, and he admitted that he was drunk at the time he did it. And two, two men in the same session admitted they were at John Gattensby's tavern on the Lord's Day at the time of the sermon, right? And, uh, and at the time, Nicholas Frost, in the, in the same same night, was so drunk that he tried again. Does this sound? Does this sound like it's in, in today's today's press here or the Globe? Nicholas Frost was so drunk he tried to stab himself with his knife. He confessed both that he was in such condition that he did not remember what he did. And he missed. And, and by the way, the court that heard these cases, where were they meeting? At Gatton Beast Tavern. So again, you know, 17th century. It reads like the crime section from Bangor Daily News. It absolutely does, yes. I loved driving in Maine uh, in the morning when the crime highlights would come in on the local radio. And always the best stuff is always like, you know, a Skowhegan couple arrested after uh, one of them discharged a firearm indoors over a Yahtzee dispute. And like, exactly. it's always, yeah. yeah. Uh, and of course it's, you know, Alan's coffee flavored brandy or something. Is it usually the culprit? Yeah, usually. Exactly. What is it? A champagne and a plague. There you as go. As they've called yes. it. <laughs> cool. Um, yes. So right. Alcohol. It's a, it is a plague among all, all homes. As we wrap up here, where in Maine, can someone find heritage brews? Do you have any recommendations? I do not right now, but I'll tell you what. When you get that website up, I'll keep looking for things. And oh, we have a. It. I mean, yeah, we have a social media presence. Oh, so that's true have, too. Yeah. Exactly. Even we sooner. have a Facebook right. page that everybody. So this is. We'll put out a plea if anybody can and should follow. Here, so here's what this: is. if there are any brewers that are currently brewing any heritage brews, let us know, and we'll be glad to promote you and to sample your your wares. Yes. We'll take the show on the road. I will show up <laughs> at your establishment and drink things and talk about it Absolutely. in a historical manner yeah. with Tad Baker and with Robin. 
Yep. That's right. Absolutely. I'm there. That's right. Come it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Right. Uh, last thing then. So those uh, books about alcohol and history and such that you were recommending, what are the what is the author and title? So, that... so um, a couple of books to recommend uh, by Patrick McGovern, who's a um, molecular biologist and archaeologist who's written two books called uh, Uncorking the Past, uh, The Quest for Wine, Beer, and Other Alcoholic Beverages. And then also, too, he's the fellow who's worked with Sam Calagione at, at, um, at Dogfish Head, and he's written a book on that called Ancient Brews, Rediscovered and Recreated, Included Home Brewing uh, in, in, in Interpretations. That And then also, too, um, I would also recommend my, my friend Butch Heilshorn's book, which is Against All Hops, Techniques and philosophy for creating extraordinary botanical beers. Again, what we would call groots, which include a couple of the historical recipes that, that Butch and I brewed as well, too. So that'll get, you, that'll get you started. All right. <laughs> we will have those titles up on the feed. Excellent. Tad Baker and Robin, thanks very much. Cheers. 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 <laughs> That's our show. Rate and review us on your listening platform so that mainly fandom can spread faster than a spilled drink. Join us again soon as we talk about another culinary staple, Maine-grown potatoes. That's next time on Mainly History.